This podcast is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Learn more about Reynolds' online retailing approach by visiting reyrey.com forward slash retail anywhere. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash retail anywhere. Welcome to Daily Drive for August 1st, 2022. I'm Kellen Walker. Jamie's out today. Today on the show, Reynolds makes an acquisition to boost cybersecurity. Inventory remains tight on dealers' lots, and the biggest supplier warns that microchips are going to remain scarce. Plus, we try to sort out what actually happened at the UAW's most unusual constitutional convention. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Retail technology giant Reynolds & Reynolds Co. on Friday acquired Proton Dealership IT which offers cybersecurity and information technology products and services. Terms were not disclosed. Reynolds president Chris Walsh said the move was in response to questions from dealership customers about the Federal Trade Commission's amended cybersecurity and IT guidance. The FTC has set a December 9th deadline for dealerships to adopt its safeguards rule amendments, implemented after breaches of customer data at various retailers. Inventory levels are getting a little bit better for big retailers, but not a whole lot. The six major public franchised retailers in late July reported that new vehicle days supply improved by two to five days between the end of March and the end of June. But company leaders generally said they believe the constrained inventory situation has yet to turn a corner toward lasting recovery. Group One Automotive CEO Earl Hesterberg noted that before the pandemic, the company used to carry 29,000 new vehicles in inventory, but this year hasn't cracked 4,000. The lack of chip supply has been the main cause of vehicle shortages, and the problem isn't going away this year. That's according to Stefan Hartung, the CEO of Bosch. Our own John Irwin spoke with Hartung recently in his first one-on-one interview with a U.S. news outlet since becoming chairman this year. He said the problem won't be resolved any sooner than 2023. The company opened a $1 billion chip fabrication plant in Dresden, Germany, and last month it pledged $3 billion in investment in more of its own microchip production, research, and support activity. And finally, Maybe a sign that Ford is gaining confidence in its own ability to produce vehicles efficiently. The U.S. automaker said it will reopen its order banks for a number of popular models, including Bronco Sport, Explorer, and Ranger. Orders for F-150 pickups resumed a few weeks ago. Ford said that the ordering process lets enthusiasts select the wheels, colors, features, and technology that suits their needs. Ford also said it's now offering tremor packages for its Maverick compact pickup. And those are today's headlines. Coming up next, a conversation to untangle the mixed messages coming out of the UAW's Constitutional Convention. That's next on Daily Drive. Customer wants to sign documents remotely? No problem. Customer wants to provide documentation and their driver's license in person? No problem. Customer wants to have their vehicle delivered? No problem. There are a lot of steps to complete a car deal, but what happens when customers start online and end in store, or vice versa? You need a seamless, consistent process to start work and finalize every vehicle purchase, no matter where the customer is. Chris Walsh, president of Reynolds & Reynolds, explains how. 
Retail Anywhere is, is powered by the retail management system. So the retail management system is the engine that, you know, that kind of makes this all work. And it's based on the premise that customers can be anywhere, right? They can be in store, they can be at home, they can be a hybrid of both. It doesn't really matter, but it's a single process of interacting with that customer. And that's you know really important to be consistent in that way. And it's only achievable through a single system like the retail management system. Regardless of where the customer is buying from and how, Retail Anywhere focuses on streamlining dealership operations and improving profitability. For more information about this holistic approach to digital retailing, visit rayray.com forward slash retail anywhere. That's reyrey.com slash retail anywhere. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Kellen Walker. The UAW's 38th Constitutional Convention last week revealed an appetite for change among some in the union's membership, but the establishment still flexed its power and influence at key points in the proceedings. Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters discussed the unusual chaotic proceedings with reporter Michael Martinez. Here's their conversation. Michael Martinez, welcome back to Daily Drive. Thanks for having me. Okay, this was an unusual convention. We we knew it would be a different kind of convention. It's a it's a different whole process going on, but this was really off the charts. President didn't give a, a proper speech. The only concrete action was undone in overtime. Mike, do we even know how this election is going to work? We know a little bit more than we did when we came into the week. We know first of all <laughs> uh, who's going to run and we know how it's going to happen especially if nobody gets a majority of votes, 50% plus one, the first time around. Now, the monitor had proposed two different sets of rules that he sent to the membership. Either they would have done a, a ranked choice voting system on that first vote where you would sort of list one, two, three, four, five, your top choices. And then if nobody got the majority, you'd go, well, who got the most second place, you know, first place votes, tally that all up. If your vote, your number one choice uh, doesn't win or is at the bottom, then it goes to then your vote goes to your second choice. Exactly. And it moves along that way until somebody gets a majority. Correct. The other option, which everybody selected and will happen, is a second round runoff between the top two candidates. Now, the establishment favored this method. The reformers wanted that ranked choice because they felt it would give everybody a bit of an easier time just putting their, their feelings up front that first time. You wouldn't have to go through the rigmarole of a second vote. You wouldn't have to worry about campaigning on company time and juggling work and finances and everything. So they wanted it all up front that first time, but folks selected that second route. So that vote, that decision on which way to run the election, to have the runoff, that was made by the delegates in the at the convention? Correct. Yeah, so it makes sense, right? If uh, Ray Curry is there, is the establishment candidate by name recognition, maybe some people want to keep him and some don't. He's got a really good chance of finishing in the top two. Whereas if you let everybody else uh, roll up, if they don't want him, he's probably way down on their list. <laughs> and the other uh, candidates could sort of run up their uh, their lead or something, gang up on him. Exactly. So what about the vice presidents? There were how many nominations and People aren't running for specific offices, right? It's not like you run to be the uh, you know UAW vice president for Ford or for GM. Will the president then select from the winners? What's the process there? 
Yeah, that, that'll happen at a separate time. So right now we know that at least two will be new in this next round because Terry Didis and Cindy Estrada have said they will retire. Chuck Browning, who's currently the Ford VP, is seeking re-election. He's one of the 10 nominees that are up for election this fall. Unclear whether or not he would remain the Ford VP that's sort of up to the executive board. You saw a lot of shuffling the last go around when Cindy Estrada went from GM to FCA, now Stellantis. Terry Didis came in and replaced her at GM. So it can change uh, every four years. Uh, and mm-hmm. We are not quite sure how that will pan out this time. The voting, it's by mail. It's not going to be in the locals in person anymore. Or I guess uh, they've never done this election. That's only been, I'm thinking of strike authorizations and, uh, and contract approvals. But they're planning, it's, it's going to be a written mail-in ballot. Is that the protocol? Mail-in ballots this fall, they'll have a certain number of weeks to turn that in. They'll get communication from the monitor's office, from the union, all about the specifics of that in the next couple months here. So, you know, the one thing that seemed to come out of the first days of the convention was this decision to increase strike pay and move it up to actually starting on day one of a strike, uh, should it happen. And then it, it seemed at, at the end of the process, they voted to to reverse that move. What, what happened there? So we need to take a step back and go back a few months ago. The International Executive Board announced that they wanted to raise strike pay from the then $275 that people got every week up to 400. And it was widely praised as a really smart move and they really liked what President Curry and the board was doing there. But some of the reform-minded folks wanted a little bit more. They proposed bumping it up to $500 per week and implementing it on day one of a potential strike versus day eight. Now we got into the convention There was a resolution to move that 400 to the first day, which was pretty unanimously approved. But then later on, there was another resolution to bump that up to $500. It was passed. And you have to realize this proposal came from All Workers for Democracy Caucus, which is a bunch of reform-minded folks. Just the fact that they were able to pull this resolution out of committee and debate it on the floor was a change from prior years because the establishment typically controls through a resolutions committee what is talked about at this convention and what is not. But now for the first time that anybody can remember, you know, you can blame the corruption scandal, you can blame years of organizing, but, you know, the anti-establishment folks kind of had enough support finally to pull resolutions out of committee. You need 15% of delegates to vote for that. They finally had that threshold. So they could debate stuff like this. They did. They got it passed. Now, the last day of the convention got a little crazy. It was (laughs) sort of the establishment flexing its power and showing them, hey, we still have plenty of influence here because establishment-backed delegates voted to uh, debate again on that resolution, to reconsider And they did, and there was some heated discussion, and they ultimately uh, rescinded it. 
went back to $400. And that happened in part after Secretary Treasurer Frank Stuglin got up there and told everybody that if that $500 a week was around in 2019, when GM struck, when they struck uh, GM for 40 days, if that was 500 instead of 400, it would have cost them an extra $29 million. And nobody really seemed to like that that figure. So they said, well, you know what? We'll go back down to 400 then. But isn't the strike fund flush? I mean, it was pushing a billion dollars a few years ago, wasn't it? Am I misremembering? It was depleted a bit uh, in 19 for the GM strike. It's around, it's over 800 <laughs> million at this point. Uh, it's I not mean, bad. That's interesting. I mean, the, yeah, you've got $800 million and you say, hey, we might have had 30 million less. You know, for the people who are on strike, getting, you know, $500, something closer to half their pay instead of 400 you know, that seems like a significant uh, impact on those folks. You know, we've been talking about the details here, but honestly, it just comes down to an exercise in power and politics. Mm -hmm. And it was the Ruther Administrative Caucus getting what it wanted and sort of showing all the reformers, all the folks that do want change that, hey, you know, know your place. Yeah, I really I did not recognize the factionalism playing out in that until reading your story. I uh, really appreciate that. But then, so you said how the ending was kind of crazy. Um, we didn't actually, in the end, we did not get a State of the Union address from uh, President Ray Curry. Uh, he was supposed to speak the first day, right? And then it just kept delaying and delaying until they just bagged it. What what happened there? <laughs> how does that happen? Well, he was supposed to speak the first day. He was supposed to be, speak the second day, the third day, and then the final day. I wonder if it's as simple as just poor planning or if it was maybe a, a passive aggressive again nod to all the reformers saying you know you want to debate resolutions you want to you know put forth amendments you want to do all this that wasn't on our original schedule fine we're gonna have to kick the headliner off the show now because you want to have this democratic process it could very well have been the fact that because so much was happening, they were just so behind schedule and they had to keep delaying and delaying. The final day, what ultimately happened was delegates voted, allegedly, we didn't see this, but we're told this, that delegates voted to just scrap all speeches that were scheduled for the final day so they could focus on the work of the convention and getting these final resolutions passed and approved. All right. So... I just want to back up for one. Want to thank you for all that. This uh, really great. You know, we're in this chaotic moment. I mean, while labor is having a, a surge in popularity around the United States, the UAW, you know, is is still pretty much reeling after you know the widespread scandal led to more than a dozen convictions. The UAW reached a deal with the Justice Department, which would keep it out of federal supervision, but under a federal monitor. You made a reference to the monitor earlier, but so was the monitor, Neil Borowski, was he there? He was there at least on the first day. President Curry was introducing folks who were on the big stage in front of the convention floor, and he introduced Neil Borowski. Now, uh, this is some inside baseball our, our listeners may not care about, but media was not allowed on the floor, which was another change in past procedures, uh, we just had to watch a feed in a media room that only showed the podium, did not show the full mm -hmm. stage. So I physically did not see the monitor, but 
He was apparently there the first day. I got a chance to sneak on. Well, not sneak. <laughs> but I got a chance to go on the floor to take some quick photos. Was escorted there throughout the week. After the first day, I did not see him any of that time. Hmm. What is his role in the convention or in the election process? Well, the monitor's office is essentially going to oversee everything and ensure it's done in a transparent, ethical way. That has to do with everything from campaign rules to finance rules to how these mail-in ballots are administered, how they're returned, and how they're counted. So he'll have a heavy hand in, in everything that goes on. Because I, I guess, yeah, I was just trying to make sure I understand sort of that distinction between the monitor and a, I don't know, a supervisor, somebody, an administrator, you know, that is, he's, but he's m much more than a documenter. He's not just there to observe. That's right. I mean, this is largely happening because of him, right? right? So he'll, the, the office, you know, maybe not him specifically, but the office will have a, a role. You know, I mean, it's a, a little more inside baseball, but I, I'm sure, you know, some folks in the auto industry gained awareness of, of Neil Borofsky when he was the special inspector general for the Troubled Assets Relief Program, uh, which was the the big bank bail, Wall Street bailout that was used to save GM and Chrysler and, and fund their restructurings in bankruptcy. He has a reputation for being very, you know, hard-nosed and sort of, you know, politically fearless. He's I think that he's been described as a lifelong Democrat, but he is uh, very aggressive in his criticism of, um, you know, Democratic, cap, big D Democratic, you know, organizations and politicians if they make any missteps. And you've seen that already. He's issued a number of reports since being installed about a year or so ago, and he's been very critical of current leadership that a harsh report dropped just before the convention saying Ray Curry and other leaders were not cooperating in his investigations until he <laughs> called in the Justice Department over potential violations of the consent decree. So he's not afraid to speak what he feels is happening. Any final thoughts on the state of the UAW? <laughs> well, since we don't technically know what the state is, it, it's really up in flux right now. I, I think when it, you look at the elections this fall, it's going to be really hard to unseat Ray Curry. He's going to be going up against four other people. I don't know that any one of those four can muster enough support. Uh, it is telling two retirees were nominated. They they also voted that retirees can't run, so it's unclear why they were nominated. But I thought it was a little telling that one of those retirees was a former top assistant to none other than the former VP General Holyfield, who was one of the first people uh, sort of swept up and implicated in this whole corruption scandal. So you wonder if the union has really learned anything. Well, Mike Martinez, we will keep in touch as this uh, UAW saga continues to unfold. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Kellen Walker. Jamie will be back tomorrow. You can get the latest news on the microchip shortage, labor negotiations, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.